Today, in Luke 17, verses 1 through 10, the title of our message is Unpacking Biblical Forgiveness. And forgiveness can be a difficult thing because we're talking about real offenses. We're not talking about small offenses. Small offenses, easy to forgive. But when someone really hurts you, they really hurt you, the Bible tells us that we have to forgive them. And Jesus often used shocking statements when he talked about forgiveness because it's so hard. I can tell you that there are two messages that I do that I have people who will come up afterwards and say it's really difficult. One of them is to love everyone. People will come up afterwards and go, this is really hard for me because you've got some unlovable people in your life. The second one is forgiving because we've been hurt and we've been hurt and we've held that in our lives and we have to end up letting it go. So Jesus said to Peter, went up and said, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven, gave a suggestion. And Jesus said, 70 times seven. Not to say that you're to keep track. Look, I've forgiven you 384 times. You better not do it again. I mean, I'm keeping track, but that we always are to forgive. Jesus said those kind of things when it came to forgiveness. And so this is going to be a bit of a challenging message. And I think that we need to have a heart. And, and I know for me, I can tell you that after giving the message twice now so far, but especially last night, as I talked about forgiveness, as I revisited the people that I've forgiven, there, once again, is just that it's almost like a physical lightness that happens. Like there's a heaviness when you are unforgiving. And when you forgive, when you let it go, it's almost like there's something physical about it. It's like you just, it's, it's, a, it's a lifting, it's a freedom. Uh, doctors tell us that when we have bitterness, anger, malice, when we have hatred for people, that that's bad for our health. And when we are loving and kind and forgiving, there's something positive, happy. There's something positive that happens within our own body. And that's not a reason for us to do it. We have a much greater reason uh, to do it. Now, Jesus is going to talk about four things connected to forgiveness here. The first, and this is in the middle, is he's going to talk about someone who asks for repentance and that you are to forgive them. There is forgiveness that is necessary for a Christian apart from repentance. But here Jesus says, if someone offends you and they repent, you forgive them. So that would be what, what we might be able to call total repentance or complete repentance where there is a complete restoration. Even when someone repents, it doesn't mean there necessarily has to be restoration. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And don't confuse for, uh, forgiveness with restoration. Years ago, I did a message on forgiveness. And afterwards, a gal came up to me and she goes, I just, I don't know that I can do this. I can't marry my ex-husband. And my response was, were you at the same, I didn't talk about that. I talked about forgiveness. And her, uh, what she had confused was, if I forgive him and he wanted to still be married, he had, he had committed an affair on her, I'm going to have to forgive him. I mean, I'm going to have to restore my marriage. And I said, no, you have to forgive him for sure. You got to let it go. Can't hold on to it forever. You got to let it go as a Christian, but it doesn't mean you have to be restored. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, here in just a moment. Uh, so he talks about forgiveness. And then before that, he talks about offenses. Because in order for there to be forgiveness, there has to be offenses. So he talks about offenses first, then forgiveness when there's repentance. And then he talks about faith because the disciples, when they hear Jesus say the shocking thing he's going to say, which I'm not going to tell you yet, this little teaser for you, uh, they say, increase our faith. Because they're like you, me. They're going to have trouble with this. They're going, Lord, I need, I need my faith increased. And so Jesus talks to them about faith. 
And then finally, he goes to servanthood. When you forgive someone, you're only doing what you've been called to do. You might be like, do I get spe a special star on a calendar somewhere? Do I get special marks in heaven because I forgave people? No, you are just doing what a Christian is supposed to do. We are supposed to forgive. And so Jesus goes to servanthood to talk about that. So let's go back to verse 1 of Luke chapter 17. Jesus said to his disciples, okay, he's talking to people who are serious about following him now. And in this text, he hasn't been. It's been others. So now he's focusing on disciples. He says, it is impossible that no offense should come. This is the world we live in. You are going to be offended. I would love to go my entire life without anybody doing anything really offensive to me from here on out. Because I, you know, it's happened to me in the past just like you. But wouldn't it be great if we had a world where Jesus says, listen, if you forgive, then no more offenses are going to take place. There's not going to be any more offenses. That'd be like, I, I like that world. How about a world where there's no tribulation? Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So this idea of offenses is kind of like that. Look, we're going to have trouble in this world. We're going to have difficulties. We're going to face things that are hard. One of them is going to be offenses. Someone's going to do something to you, against you, uh, and it's a real offense. Again, I'm dismissing for this study smaller offenses. And we, may, we even struggle with forgiving people for small things. But I'm talking about real offenses, real genuine offenses. And so is Jesus. That's going to become evident here in just a moment. And so Jesus says this, it's impossible that offenses won't happen, but woe to him through who they do come. In other words, even though offenses are out there, you want to be careful that you are not offending people. Because woe, and he doesn't even tell us what this woe is. Woe to you who offenses come by. So this means it's a good enough for us to evaluate ourselves and where we are and say, I don't want to be, I don't want to be offensive to people. I don't want to take advantage of people. I don't want to be abusive to people. I want to make sure I'm treating people right with love, justly and properly. I want to, it's every effort because woe to him to whom it comes by. Now, Jesus goes to the extreme. He says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Let's start with the little ones here. Jesus, in one place in Matthew, uses little ones to talk about children. He brings a child in front of him, the disciples, and he says, you want to make it into the kingdom of God, you've got to become like a child. I love that Jesus did that. He didn't bring in a smart, you know, professor or religious leader, somebody who was really achieved high things and said, you want to make it into the kingdom of heaven, then become like this person. He said, you've got to become like a child. The great thing about that is, is that every one of us can become like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, and if anyone hurts one of these little ones, it would be better if a millstone were hung around your neck and cast into the sea. So that's real heavy. Jesus literally is talking about people who abuse children. And he talks about a great warning that he, he judges everyone. And I just want to say for the sake of those that may be here that may be abusing your kids, um, some things that, that people don't think about. I grew up in a, a home where my father was abusive. My dad was a strict disciplinarian. His dad was a strict disciplinarian. My dad went too far. Uh, to, to backhand me wasn't uncommon to happen. There were also bruises that were left. I, I've gone into detail before in studies. I'm not going to do that today. I'll just say that I, I grew up in a, fa in a home where I was abused by my father. So was my older sister. 
Now, my dad got Lou Gehrig's disease when I was 11, which is a nerve disease. And so in my mind, I excuse him a little bit because I think, well, maybe he was having nervous breakdowns. Maybe that's why he would flip out so much. I remember one event that we got, we got beat for. I would say spanked for, but it was beyond spanking. It was a beating. Uh, and um, I, I was in the bathtub. The bar of soap had a, a hole in it off to the side. So in my mind, I saw a smiley face. So I dug another hole and a smiley face in the soap. When my dad found the soap, he was like, who did this? And it was a huge issue. And of course, I was like, I didn't do it. And my sister was like, I didn't do it. And it was just over the top. Now, um, when I was, my dad, as I said, got Lou Gehrig's disease at 11. When he died, when I was 13, almost 14, when he died, I wasn't told that he died. My mom just came in the room and I could tell by her demeanor. And my dad had been going to the hospital. My dad was 6'1", 220 pounds as, a, as an adult. And when he died, he was 98 pounds and in a wheelchair. And so I just knew things were happening. And my first thought when my dad died was good. That's really how that abuse had affected me is that when my dad died, I thought good. Now, since then, I've learned to let that go. I've learned to forgive him. I also think he brought me to church his whole life. He was a Methodist. He brought me to church his whole life. When he found out that he had Lou Gehrig's disease, I walked by his room periodically and would see him laying in bed, staring at the ceiling. And I have a hope that he made things right with God and that one day I'm going to be able to see him again and have this, you know, kind of father and son relationship where I've let it go and where he's beyond all of that. But I just wanted to bring that up that if you're being abusive to your kids, if you're overbearing to your kids, if you're sexually abusive, you know, heaven forbid, but if that's taking place, it's got to stop because you're causing damage to your kids that you may not realize. And your child, and maybe you do realize it, but woe to you who offense has come. And Jesus is talking about very real things here. And your child is going to grow up. I was 18 years old before it dawned on me how bad the things my dad did were. When I was 18 years old, here's the thought that I had. And I'm just going to tell you what my thought was, all right? Um, all of a sudden dawned on me, well, you don't treat kids that way. You don't treat kids that way. My dad was a jerk. That's what my, my thought. My dad was a jerk. It was like an, uh, this, all of a sudden, this epiphany. My dad was a jerk. You don't treat kids like that. And I wonder if my dad knew that I was going to become a pastor and stand up in front of hundreds of people and tell them about what he had done if that might have made my dad go, huh, maybe I should treat Robert a little differently here. Now, he was doing whatever he thought he needed to do to make me a man. I mean, that was his statement, strict discipline, right? You're going to be a man. You're going to be a man. When he found out that he was going to die, remember one day he was disciplining me. I told you I was going to tell you all these stories. Here I am telling them. Um, and he literally shook his fist at me. These, he has Lou Gehrig's disease at this point. He shook his fist at me. He said, I'll make you a man yet. So he had his own mindset for what he was doing and what he thought he was doing that was good for me. Nevertheless, um, hey, your child's going to grow up. You're abusing your kid now. Your it's going to dawn on your kid at some point what you're doing. You, you, offenses, it's impossible that they come. But woe to the person by which the offense comes. And, and if you hurt one of these little ones, it would be better for you. He's not saying this is what's going to happen. It would be better for you if a millstone were tied around your neck and cast into the sea. So you guys didn't think it was going to get this heavy, did you? It's pretty heavy. So now after saying that and making that statement, he says, 
Take heed to yourselves. This is verse 3. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, just the way that lays out, your brother sins against you. It's someone who's close to you. Doesn't necessarily need to be a real brother, but it's someone close to you and they offend you. You are to rebuke them. Now, for some of you, confrontation comes easier than others. Some of you guys, you, you would like die before you confront someone. You're just like, I'm not, not going to do it. I hate confrontation. Others of you, you're really good at it. You're like, I'll, con I'll confront them. But the idea here, when it says rebuke him, is much harsher than the Greek word. We know that when we are to talk to someone about someone offending us, we're to go to them with gentleness, with love. We're to consider ourselves, right? You offended me. You sinned against me. I just want you to know that. Uh, we don't have to, it, it doesn't have to be this harsh thing, okay? It sounds harsh here, I understand, but it doesn't need to be. But then he, he, if he repents, forgive him. And you go, okay, well, good, I can, I can do that. Then he says, and if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And here's where we all go, well, why does he keep doing it? Right? Well, what's, it's, it's seven times in a day, really? No wonder the disciples in a few minutes are going to go, Lord, increase our faith. How are we going to do this? But I think that's forgiveness in general. And that's why Jesus talked about this 490, this seven times in a day. Jesus, another shocking thing he said, if you don't forgive, your father is not going to forgive your sins. That's a, that's a shocking thing because he wants us to know the importance of letting things go. The importance of forgiving people around us. Now, let me just give you four quick things uh, that the Bible tells us about forgiveness because I really want us just to come back in and center around what the Bible says about it because if we just read this passage, we could think that somebody has to repent in order for us to forgive them. But I want to show you the Bible doesn't teach that. That yes, when someone says, I'm sorry, you are to forgive them and repentance is important, but you have to forgive even if someone doesn't repent. And I want to show you that, okay? So first of all, um, we find that Jesus gave us an example of forgiveness while he was being crucified on the cross. And this is in Luke 23, 34. It says, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You had a detail of four soldiers with a centurion who were crucifying Jesus as they drove the nails through his hands and feet. And in the Greek, this is in the continual. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Imagine that detail, what kind of things they had heard when they were crucifying people. Sh begging for sure. Please don't, please don't, please don't. Bribing. I've got money. I got friends that got money. I can cursing, which I'm not going to act like I'm cursing. <laughs> but to for have someone say, forgive them. Father, forgive them. For they there was no repentance on these men's part. Jesus gave us that example of being crucified and letting it go. And so people will say to me, well, you don't know what they've done to me. Did they crucify you? Because Jesus gave us that example. And, I'm, and by saying that, I'm not trivializing what you've been through. I know what you've been through is hard. That doesn't relieve us from having to let it go. And it's really you that's suffering. Your malice, your anger, your bitterness is hurting you. You want them to pay. They owe me. They hurt me. They should pay. I hate them. But your hatred is hurting you and not them. And in fact, if they found out, if you're like years later, look, I've been angry at you, bitter and angry because of what you did to me, they might just go, good. I'm glad. And then it'd be worse for you, right? So by you holding it against them is not hurting them. 
The second thing the Bible teaches about us about forgiveness is that when we go to God, we want to make sure our relationship with God is not hindered. You have been forgiven and you're a believer, you're a Christian. And when you don't forgive someone, I don't believe that heaven is in, in trouble for you. Jesus said, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. I think it's talking about that fellowship with God. Because you're an unforgiving person, because you've been forgiven a great amount and you won't forgive a little bit of an amount, then that fellowship with God is broken. And in order to kind of like remember Peter washing Peter's feet, Peter said, my head and my hands. And Jesus said, you're already clean. I just need to wash your feet. It was separating the fellowship. And so that's what I think is happening here. And so Mark eleven twenty five 25 says, and whenever you stand praying, whenever you're going to pray, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. So this has no repentance. This is just you standing and praying. And you go, I, I've got this person that's done this to me. We're to forgive them. Again, we're not trivializing it. We're simply saying this is what we are supposed to do as Christians. In the Lord's Prayer, we were taught to pray. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. No repentance in that. I'm just showing you that at times there are, is repentance and you forgive them. At times there's not repentance and you forgive them anyway. Um, and this does not have to do with restoration. And let me just deal with restoration a little bit here now. I've seen God do incredible restorations. I've seen marriages that are a mess. I've seen family members that have been hateful towards one another, vindictive towards one another, and God heal those relationships. I've seen husbands change and God restore marriages. All of those things can happen. And I would just say, at least be open to what God may do. But also you get a decision, you have a decision and you don't have to have somebody intimately involved in your life that you don't want. And if someone has done something to you that has injured you and put you in danger, if that's mental, in mental danger, emotional danger, or physical danger, you don't have to go back into that situation. And I'm not going to be able to address your particular difficulty because I'm talking in broad senses here and you've got a lot of details. And so I encourage you, if, if you have something like this in your life and you're thinking, maybe I need to restore this, but I can't because of whatever reasons, then do one of a, a few things. Number one, find a good spiritual mature believer that you can talk to. Someone you trust, someone who knows the word of God and you can kind of lay things out. Go, go to one of our pastors, sit down and talk with them, tell them what's going on. Look for biblical direction from that. Go to a counselor if you need to, preferably a biblical counselor because I think a non-biblical counselor is gonna go, what are you talking about this whole forgiveness thing? Why is that an issue? They're just gonna say, well, just hate him. It's okay, he did horrible things to you. So you probably want to go to a biblical counselor, but biblical counselors are good. I'm just telling you, I think that if you're thinking about restoration or you're having trouble, you're feeling guilty that you're not restoring when maybe you don't have to, that you're, you probably need a little more help. You need a little more detail that I can't cover here today. All right. But restoration is a choice uh, that you get to make. Now, let me really quickly, I want to talk about the third thing, which is how God forgives us, which is complete and total. I love 1 John 1, 9. It's not in my notes, but I just want to give it to you. And you guys know this passage well. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. If you say, God, I'm sorry, God is faithful to forgive you your sin. 
so much that you go boldly before the throne of God. In Isaiah 1.18, God says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, I'll make them as white as snow. Though they be as red as crimson, I'll make them like wool. God, it, there's some reasoning that has to take place. You go to God. I can tell you that when I pray, even though in the Lord's Prayer, and the Lord's Prayer is a model of how we pray, and even though that's in the middle of it, when I pray, my sin is so much on my mind. If I go for a walk and pray, or I go into a room and sit down and get my coffee in the morning and sit down to pray, the very first thing I do is ask for forgiveness. It's just the way that I am. I, I just seek God for forgiveness. And I know God completely forgives me. I just want to make sure there's nothing keeping that fellowship from me and God. In Psalms 103.12, great verse, God has separated our sin as far as the east is from the west, and they will never meet, right? So that's how far God has separated your sin from you, which is pretty amazing. In Micah 7.19, it says, He will have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities and will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. That's how far God separates your sin from you, which is pretty amazing. And Jesus will deal with hypocrisy. We've had this great debt forgiven. And then we turn around to someone that hasn't done to us what we've done to God. And we say, I can't forgive you. That's why it causes problems in our lives, because it's hypocrisy. And Jesus said, don't be like the hypocrites. He doesn't want that hypocrisy in our lives. Um, the fourth is that the Bible teaches that a lack of forgiveness leads to bitterness, wrath, clamor, evil speaking, and malice. Malice is when you want something bad to happen to someone. And you may be experiencing those emotions now with someone who has hurt you if you haven't forgiven them. You're like, their obituary would be the happiest thing you could ever see in your life. That's malice. And that's where unforgiveness leads. That's why God doesn't want us to have that. That's Ephesians 4.31. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, loving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. One more, this is Hebrews 12, 14, and 15. We're talking about what unforgiveness does inside of us. It says, pursue peace with all men and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest any fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many have become defiled. No one here is an exception to this. When, when we allow a root of bitterness, which unforgiveness is going to be that root of bitterness, it produces a tree in our lives eventually, and we can be defiled by it if we don't walk in that forgiveness. So it's the absolute best thing for you as well. Now, the disciples' response. So Jesus tells them, you've got to forgive somebody, and if they come to you and they sin seven times in a day and they repent seven times in a day, you're to forgive them seven times in a day. And they're like, verse 5, and the apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. If I'm going to do that, I need to have more faith. Now, they have a misunderstanding about faith. I'm going to give you my definition of faith. I think this is a really good definition, but then again, it is my definition. Faith is believing God enough that you actually do what it says. That's faith. It doesn't have anything to do with confidence. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you struggle to do it. Sometimes people will say to me, I wish I had your faith. Well, I mean, to be honest, you don't know anything about my faith. I may come to the point where I do it, but I do what God said to do, and that's faith. But you don't know if I've struggled with doing it. 
you don't know what kind of, everybody has struggles when it comes to being obedient to God. There's going to be areas that you're hit with that you go, God wants me to do this and I'm going to have trouble with that. If you don't do it, that's a lack of faith. If you do it, it is faith. So the disciples are asking the wrong question. There are the prosperity teachers that teach that we have a faith container inside of us and we got to get that faith container full and then we can do whatever. Jesus said, if, um, if you have faith, well, let's read what he says here uh, instead of me quoting it. So he says, um, so the Lord said, if you have faith, this is verse six, this as of a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, which is a different tree in the Greek, by the way, this was a mistranslation. That's neither here nor there. It's a tree, doesn't matter. Um, that you would say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by its roots and be planted in the sea and it will obey you. At one point, Jesus is with the disciples. They're going over the Sea of Galilee and the disciples say to Jesus again, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus says, have I been with you this long and you still don't understand? If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. Now he's talking in with, with an analogy here. He's talking in a metaphor. He's not talking about literally throwing mountains around. We know that because we've never seen them tossed around by anybody with great faith. Catalina, whoom, into the sea, you go, you know. We know that that's not the case. But have you, by believing God, ever had a mountain moved in your life? Have you ever had a tree that's in your, and, and by believing God, you've had that tree removed? That's what Jesus is saying. Mountains will be removed in your life. Trees will be removed. Faith has incredible power. Your life is radically changed when you do the things that God tells you to do. And that's faith. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So some teachers say, well, that means we got to hear the word of God everywhere we go. We're going to get more faith. In a sense, yes, if you are conscious, if you're paying attention, because when the, the more you know about what the Bible tells you to do, the more faith you can have because you know more of what God's word says. The less you know about God's word, the less faith you're going to have because you don't know what God requires of you. So when you're doing it, that's faith. And he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which means that you may struggle with doing it, right? And we may be talking about forgiveness. You may be like, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do this, but you do it. That was a little bit of faith. It wasn't great faith. Somebody else here goes, oh yeah, I got to forgive everybody. Boom, I'm going to forgive them. They had great faith, but a little bit of faith gets it done. Doesn't matter as long as we do it. So Jesus's response to them if you have uh, faith the size of a mustard seed, you can save this moment, you be pulled up, the roots planted by the sea, and it will obey you. We're going to find power to be able to forgive as we put his words into action. Now, one more thing about Jesus giving us a command, like forgive and you'll be forgiven. When Jesus healed people, he simply spoke to them. And I love that. When we pray for people to be healed, we lay hands on them and we ask that God would heal them. And we usually will quote a couple of verses. You've said, Lord, if we lay hands on the sick, they will recover. And so we're praying that they would recover. Jesus didn't do that. When he, there was a man with a withered hand early in his ministry, and he looked at that man and said, stretch out your hand. And you could say, what a mean thing to say. Guy's got a withered hand. The guy could have said, I can't, it's withered. What do you mean stretch out my hand? But with the command came the ability for that man to stretch out his hand. With the command of Jesus comes the ability to be able to do what he calls you to do. Love one another the way I love you. We go, oh, Lord, I don't think I can do that. But as you try to do it, you find that there's the ability to do it 
With the command comes the ability. He's not going to tell you to forgive if you can't do it. He's going to give you the ability to be able to forgive. So now we turn to servanthood. And this is a little bit of a difficult passage, and I'll explain why in a moment. Let's read it first, and then let's talk about it. So in verse 7, and, and basically what Jesus is telling them, you guys want more faith, but I'm telling you that if you're a servant and you do this, it's just what servants do. We're supposed to be servants. So he says in verse 7, And which of you, having a servant plowing or ten, uh, tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come in at once and sit down and eat? But he will not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did the things which were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, when you have done all of these things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what is our duty to do. So Jesus compares this to duty. The problem is, is he's comparing slavery. He's using that as an example for what we're supposed to do. And so you will run into people who will say that the Bible condones slavery. They'll even use this passage. Jesus condoned slavery when he said his disciples were to be like unprofitable servants. But if you say that, you, you haven't studied slavery in the Bible. Because in the Old Testament law, there was a command that if you kidnapped someone and made them your slave, you were to be put to death. Slavery, as it was known in the United States, not really in the United States, around the world in, in the 1700s, the United States was late in coming to the game of abolishing slavery. It was done in England, in Europe, in different parts of Europe in 1750, 100 years earlier, it was done. Christians played a huge role, by the way, in ending slavery. And slavery, as it was known, the chattel kind of slavery, the brutal slavery in the United States, you would have been killed under the law in the Bible. So when someone says to you, well, the Bible condones slavery, you go, mm, slavery in their day, they didn't have prisons. So when you offended someone and you owed them something, when you, when you did something, you owed them money, you became their servant. You became their slave. That's, instead of prisons, that's what they did in their day. So there were servants in the Old Testament and the Bible does have laws about the way you treat servants. It was different than slavery in the United States though and that's important for us to understand. And every, every on the year of Jubilee, seven, seven times seven, 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 seven years of sevens, 49 years, that's a long time, I realize, but you had to set everybody free. So there was a day that, that anybody who was a servant would be set free according to the scriptures. All right, so I just wanted to bring that up because you're going to run into that sooner or later. So what's Jesus saying to us? Jesus became, he was God. He became a man. He could have become any kind of man, but he, came a, he became a servant. And then he was obedient to the point of death, even the awful death of a cross. And so he lowered himself to the role of a servant. And when we realize, you know what? I'm just a servant here. I'm God's servant and I'm serving people. And Jesus said, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Then learn to be a servant to everyone. When they argued over who was going to be greatest, he didn't, he didn't discourage them about wanting to be great, but he simply said, you want to be great? Then learn to be a servant. Keith Green, who was a contemporary Christian artist in the 70s, um, had a huge influence on my life, by the way, wrote a song called, Oh Lord, You're Beautiful. If you've been around Christianity for any amount of time, you probably sang it. Oh Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I see. And when your eyes are on this child, 
your grace abounds towards me. It's a great song. But then he says this, when I'm doing well, help me to never seek a crown because my reward is giving glory to you. That's the idea. That when we're doing well, when we do it, we aren't seeking anything, but simply to say, I'm forgiving Lord because I love you and you told me to. There may be benefits or not, but you told me to, and I'm going to forgive because of that. In Philippians 2, 7, Jesus makes himself a servant. Um, the disciples argued about who was going to be uh, great in the kingdom of God, and they were walking with Jesus, and uh, Jesus turned around and said, what are you guys talking about? They kept silent, it says. Let me read this to you. Mark 9, 34 and 35. But they kept silent on the road. Um, for, uh, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the 12 and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he must become last and be the servant to all. And so the benefits that we get from it are one thing, but just the obedience of saying, I want to be that person God wants me to be. And I want to forgive those people that need to be forgiven. And it's as simple as letting it go. You let it go. When, when someone offends you, they owe you. You hurt me, now you're going to pay, and you're going to pay by me being angry and bitter and have malice towards you. But when you let it go, you forgive them. You don't have to tell people you forgive them because if someone isn't repentant and you go to them and tell them, hey, listen, I want to let you know I, I forgave you, and they go, I don't care. And now you've got new anger, bitterness, malice towards them for something else, right? <laughs> It's just a matter of, first of all, doing it before God, and then God will convict you, convince you, if you need to go further and make something right with someone. I'm not saying that doesn't need to happen at times, but let God do that. God will, well, you have to go to someone and say, listen, I just want you to know I'm sorry. The Lord's convicted me for what I've done, and I want you to know I'm sorry. Maybe that'll need to be done. I don't know. Let God work to you when you're in your heart. All right, stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you deal with this very difficult issue of forgiveness. And thank you also that the disciples had trouble with it. That the, as they heard you say it, that they were like, we need more faith. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would be obedient. I pray for those that are really struggling to be able to let go and forgive. And I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would give them what they need. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.